We're going to make a pretty big jump today. Um, If you are just joining us or maybe you haven't been here in a while, we've spent the last three weeks listening for what the people of God were learning about God and about who they were to be while they went through the wilderness after being liberated from their enslavement in Egypt. Um, We went through a series that we called Manna Living. Um, And the goal, the goal of this wilderness school was for the people of God to learn to be a different people, a people who lived in a different way. And it was to look nothing like the way of Pharaoh. Now, we know their time in the wilderness does end. They enter into the land that God promised, and what follows is a series of conquest stories, which I think we all have to admit are a little hard to read. Um, Following those conquest stories, we move into the history of Israel becoming Israel, the rise and fall of kings, and the overarching theme in all of this The drama that is driving this story. Will the people of God remember whose they are? Will they remember the lessons of the manna? Will the people of God remember that it's about being a people, creating a community that looks nothing like the oppressive, unjust system of Pharaoh? Well, we know they don't always remember. (laughs) They forget whose they are. They forget the lessons of the manna, and this is where the prophets come into play. And this is where we will spend the next few Sundays, listening to the message of the prophets, holding that alongside some of the teachings of Jesus that point us back to the lessons of the manna. We begin with words from the prophet Hosea, Hosea 11, verses 1 through 11. And what I love about this passage in Hosea, and it's kind of why I wanted to start with it, is because it does point us back to the wilderness, this wilderness school and all those lessons. We remember God as teacher, and we meet God as parent. And as we prepare to hear God's word this day, Let us pray. Eternal God, in the reading of the scripture, may your word be heard. In the meditations of our hearts, may your word be known. And in the faithfulness of our lives, may your word be shown. Amen. So Hosea 11, um, verses 1 through 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more I called them, the more they went from me. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and offering incense to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with bands of love. I was to them like those who lift infants to their cheeks. I bent down to them and fed them. 
They shall return to the land of Egypt, and Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword rages in their cities. It consumes the oracle priest and devours because of their schemes. My people are bent on turning away from me. To the Most High they call, but he does not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zebuin? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and no mortal, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord who roars like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, says the Lord. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. In Hosea's day, um, the time that Hosea was called to prophesy, the community of faith had violated the covenant relationship they had with God by forgetting to trust God, by forgetting that God provides manna for all to be shared for all, by forgetting God is faithful. They sought security through other means. They worshipped idols. They made alliances with Assyria, who required massive taxes, which Israel's rulers extracted from the lower classes. So slowly, they became what they did not wish to be, a community with some on top and some on bottom, and the majority of the weight falling upon those who could least carry it. In fact, if you jump a few chapters back in Hosea 8, the prophet says, Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces. But let's put a pin in Hosea's message for just a minute, and I want to jump to our gospel lesson, because when Jesus comes, we still struggle to live into the lessons of the manna. The story of the rich fool begins with a dispute where Jesus is asked to weigh in. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. According to Deuteronomic law, the elder brother should receive a double portion of the inheritance. Now, to me, that in itself creates some family disputes, um, but that was the law. In this case, the man's brother refused to give him his due. So they come to Jesus. And Jesus says, don't bother me with such things. One commentary I read said that you could almost hear Jesus sarcastically saying, Moses may have handled such matters, but I refuse to do so. He refuses to arbitrate, and instead he gives a warning against greed says there is more to life than possessions, and tells a story. Now, if you read through the Gospel of Luke, you find very quickly that one of Luke's major themes is the danger of wealth. Why? Because we forget to trust God. We forget God provides manna for all to be shared for all. We forget God is faithful. 
we start to seek security through other means to keep the wealth that we have established. We forget our maker and we begin to build palaces. And if you really break down this parable of Jesus, um, you notice something. So I want to walk you back through it. We've got this setting, right? A rich man and his land. The land, it says, produces abundantly. The land, not him, the land, pointing us back to Genesis and the gift of creation itself. And then the story continues, and we get a little bit more on this rich man. We get to hear his thoughts. He thought to himself, it says. And in these thoughts, well, just listen. Listen to the number of times I appears. Listen to the number of times my appears, the repetition of what he will do. And he thought to himself, what should I do? For I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. And did you notice? No mention of God or God's people. Boy, how far we have come from the lessons of the manna. There's no one else in this picture except the rich man and his goods. One reason that wealth is such a major theme in the Gospel of Luke is because of the way wealth turns us away from dependence upon God. It makes us insensitive to the plight of the poor. In other words, we become Egypt sitting on a pile of our wealth that rests on the backs of others we choose not to see. Well, that and one more thing. I named this message, The Struggle is Real. Where's Cadence? You ready? This is why it's named that. You asked me. Um, because I hear that line, soul, you have ample goods stored up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. And I'm not going to lie, a life of ease, eating, drinking, being merry, that sounds pretty dang good to me. I can imagine for those with days marked by struggle, those living on the edge, those just longing to catch up, they hear that and they say, yes, where do I sign up for that? How do I do that? The struggle is real. But here's the problem. The problem for us um, who choose a life of discipleship following Jesus Christ and the story of God and God's people, nothing about manna living is about the individual, about me, about I. Manna living was all about being community, about being a people. 
the challenge that the people of God carried with them in the wilderness, the challenge they carried with them into the promised land, the challenge Israel carried as a nation, the challenge the followers of Jesus carry to this day is that the call to live faithfully is a call to re-examine continually our lifestyle and our financial choices while participating faithfully in caring communities, providing for those in need, persistently challenging structures that penalize the poor. Now, if we were just holding the parable of the rich fool off by itself, um, it is one of those passages that could easily be dwindled down to a question of where you think you will go when you die, the are you ready passage. And it's been used in this way. But it's really about our own self-awareness here and now. The parable is called the rich fool because in light of all that's going on um, in those who came to Jesus with this question to begin with, all that's going on in their world, in light of all the things, in light of all that life can be, in light of the call to man a living, anyone who's worried about the size of his barn is a fool indeed. I think of it this way. There's a saying that says, God, break my heart with what breaks yours. Remind me of who you are and who you call me to be. Let me see what you see and let me trust that you will provide and guide and carry. Now let me jump back to Hosea. So hang in there with me. Both of these passages were a little bit more than I could handle this week. Um, I said the struggle is real. Um, the struggle to acquire, the desire to, yes, eat, drink, and be merry. The struggle to become less dependent upon God and trust in our own systems. The struggle is real. So how do we even know if we're doing it right? If we're balancing it all appropriately and faithfully? Wealth and generosity justice and mercy. How do we know we aren't the fool? How do we know? I don't, I don't know that we ever really do, um, but I'm not sure that knowing that is the point. I'm not sure being 100% certain that we are doing all the things right is the point, and here's why. And it's another reason why I chose the Hosea passage. If you start at chapter 1 of Hosea and you read through it, you will see that the prophet indicts the people of God for 10 chapters. Then we get to chapter 11, our reading today, and there is an abrupt turn. We meet God as a loving parent, remembering, lamenting, loving God has invested time and energy and love in the nurture and care of Israel. There's a parental compassion present in this passage. As one commentary says, there's a strain on the divine heart. How can I give you up? How can I hand you over? My heart recoils. My compassion grows warm and tender. What we hear 
is that God will never give up. Hosea gives a message of God's deep, visceral love. And the hope is that that love will infiltrate. That the more that we come to receive that love and understand that love, the more we live into that love. The wisdom of scripture we find in Hosea and in the parable about a rich fool um, is what we learn in the early pages of Genesis. We really are free to make disastrous choices and choices have consequences. But our God is a God of redemption and we are never beyond redeeming. The love of God has a stronger bond than that of a mother and her child. And it is this love that calls, that comforts, that corrects, that carries, if we will but allow it to. So as we move through the voices of the prophets and some hard teachings of Jesus over the next few weeks, voices and teachings that are supposed to make us squirm just a little bit, um, or maybe a lot, we start with Hosea. We meet God as parent. And we meet a God that will never give up. I saw this on uh, Facebook this week, and I thought it was a perfect way to kind of sum up all of this. It holds, holds everything these passages hold, I feel like. It said, spoiler alert, ministry is messy. The church isn't perfect. We are all a little crazy. God is really good. You are ridiculously loved. So may the truth of God's ridiculous love for us call us, comfort us, correct us, and carry us. Amen.